You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. My name is Tina, here with Metamorphosis. And I'm Dylan, and here on Metamorphosis Podcast, we're interviewing different doctors in the Vancouver area to learn about their specialties and their work. We are lucky enough today to have Dr. Shauna Korea as a guest today. Um, she was our clinical skills tutor, and she taught us sexual medicine interviewing. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk to you guys a bit about about me, the work I do. Could you just start off with telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey through medicine and how you decided to be a doctor? Sure, yeah. So I, I don't think I picked the most straightforward path. I was actually, uh, before medicine, I was in engineering and I did my undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering and I was a rather big space geek back in the day. And then I realized I got to do some really cool work uh, back in those days. I got to work for the German Aerospace Agency. I got to work on a lot of military defense stealth projects in Canada. Um, it was a really exciting time, but I, I realized even though the projects I w- was working on were like really cool and intellectually stimulating, um, what I enjoyed the most about my day was actually interacting with my colleagues and Uh, problem solving on projects in a more sort of social way rather than sitting in front of a computer and working on Excel spreadsheets. And so I kind of realized I wasn't going to be happy spending my life doing this sort of work. And I started thinking, well, what else could I do that would still be in the field of space? And I was like, I don't know, aerospace medicine sounds really cool. Maybe I could do that. And so sure enough, I applied to medicine and I got into, got into a couple of medical schools, but I decided to go to McGill. And I went in with this objective of, uh, of course, it makes sense to go from aerospace engineering. I'm obviously going to do aerospace medicine. And then I got into medicine and I realized, oh my gosh, there's so many more things that I could possibly do. And I started to be interested in, in everything. You know, in that first year of university of, or first year of med school when you're like, oh, I don't know, that's really cool, and that's really cool, and this is cool. And so I had that, and I I guess I just kind of was like, I'm going to not go into anything with a preconceived notion of what I'm going to be interested in and just be open to all possibilities. And then fast forward into, I guess, third year of medical school, I started doing a lot of electives in places where there was a lot of sort of large populations or concentrations of youth. So for example, I did an elective in Lake Louise, I did an elective in Whistler, I went to some Caribbean islands and did some electives down there where there was a lot of like youth that would go and work on resorts. And you can imagine that in these areas, there's a large concentration of STIs, a lot of partying youth, potentially increases risk for STIs. And so a lot of my days in the clinics were spent doing sexual histories on these patients. And my preceptors would tell me like, you are so comfortable doing this. And to me, it didn't feel like anything abnormal. It was just like doing any other HPI. But my preceptors, different varying preceptors kept giving me that feedback of, It's obviously something that you're very comfortable with. It's something that's easy for you. You make your patients feel at ease. You're getting more information than we typically get from these patients. And I started to think about that and reflect, like, maybe if this is something I'm naturally really good at, maybe I should think about this a little bit more. And so I then started to try to figure out where I could do an elective in sort of either sexuality or in sexual medicine. And at that time at McGill, there was a sexual medicine elective. So I started to do that elective and I basically fell in love. I couldn't imagine having a job more rewarding than helping people have better sex and keeping relationships together. So having people that are at the verge of divorce because they're struggling with a sexual dysfunction and being able to provide an intervention 
that will help improve their pleasure and their sexual intimacy, keep relationships stronger. I just thought that that would be the most amazing career path. So that's when I decided, okay, so I think I was in third, fourth year of med school when I made that decision. And then the rest of fourth year, I had to really decide how I'm going to go about having a career especially or specializing in sexual medicine. So my options were, you know, I could go into gynecology, I could go into urology, I could go into family medicine. I kind of knew I didn't want to do gynecology because I didn't want to only treat women. So I knew I had, I wanted to do something that either was women and men. I had an appreciation that family medicine might not offer me the ability to spend as much time as might be needed to really get to ask all the questions about sexual medicine. So I eliminated family medicine pretty early on. That kind of left me with psychiatry or urology. I loved urology. I loved my rotations in urology in med school. I was fascinated by the surgical aspects. I was fascinated by a lot that urology had to offer. But I fundamentally felt that if I did my five years residency in urology, that I wouldn't have enough skills to manage the psychological sequelae of sexual dysfunction, which I thought was really where the meat of a lot of problems with sexual medicine lie. Even if you can identify a clear biological reason for a, a sexual dysfunction, the biggest part is dealing with the way the individual responds to that problem. So dealing with their distress, dealing with their anxiety, dealing with the way they feel about themselves as a person, as a lover, and then being able to manage the repercussion of that in the context of the relationship. And so I finally decided, I think psychiatry is going to be a better route as long as I continue to keep up with my actual medical skills. I knew that was going to be my biggest challenge. So here I go. I decide a psychiatry. I apply. I match to Dalhousie and I do my five years of psychiatry at Dalhousie. And at times it was, it was five years doing something that you don't really want to end up doing is a long time. But I think it really did give me all skills I really required in it in order to be able to do my job now better. I did choose throughout my psychiatry residency as many electives as I could in urology and in gynecology and in endocrinology. And so it would be funny, I mean, the urologists out in Halifax were not used to having a psychiatry resident on their rotations with them, but they were great, and I had really positive experiences. I knew all along that uh, UBC had one of the world's most recognized sexual medicine clinic. I knew that it was important that I kind of try to get out here one way or another to be exposed to the talent and expertise that's out here. And so in my fifth year of uh, psychiatry residency, I came out here and did a three-month rotation and fell in love with Vancouver, fell in love with the clinic, fell in love with all the colleagues, the expertise that lies here. And um, yeah, and then I came out here once I graduated. And that's my journey. Wow, like that's a really colorful path starting in engineering, aerospace, aerospace <laughs> medicine, and now into maybe what seems from the outside an unexpected place um, that you seem to really enjoy. I wanted to ask you, you just spoke about it a bit briefly. So what was the experience of the psychiatry residency like, especially knowing that you wanted to go into sexual medicine? Because I think that like, not only in this field, there are other fields like critical care, for example, where people are choosing like emergency medicine versus internal versus anesthesia. And these are like five years of anesthesia, but I don't want to be an anesthesiologist. I suppose it's similar. Yeah. Um, could you maybe elaborate a bit on how your residency experience was? Yeah. I mean, I think residencies are difficult times for everybody. Even if you are doing your dream residency, there are still going to be challenges and tough times. I think there were times when I was on certain rotations and in my head I was like, oh, this is never going to be relevant to me. But in retrospect, now I'm like, yeah, there was something I learned from that opportunity that can be relevant to my practice now. And 
it does take, I think, that hindsight, that going through it and then thinking back and reflecting to see how opportunities can all be learning opportunities. So at the time, it felt challenging, but now I'm really glad I did it. I think I had a really good residency experience. My staff, the staff at Dalhousie, were all very much aware that I wanted to do sexual medicine. So every single time I had to do a presentation, it was somehow related to sexuality or sexual dysfunction. So I would do presentations on antidepressant-induced sexual dysfunction, on presentations on antipsychotic-induced sexual dysfunction. Like it was just, you know, I'd be on my, my repro psych rotation and I would talk about sexuality in postpartum women. It was just an ongoing theme with me, but everybody at, the, at Dalhousie accepted that this is where my passion was. And they were, I think, quite supportive in helping me get to now where I am now. Yeah. So is there a formal fellowship in sexual medicine? So we are working towards a formal uh, training program. It hasn't quite been solidified. We're hoping in the next couple of years we get something formal. There's not sort of a recognition at the Royal College level yet. That is hopefully something we also work on. But at this point, I don't know of a formal fellowship program in Canada. There are other types of opportunities and certification opportunities in Europe and I believe in the States as well, but here in Canada we don't have anything formal yet. So it sounds like for you, psychiatry was the best route to being able to practice sexual medicine. Could you talk about other specialties where you can also work in sexual medicine and kind of compare and contrast what the benefits and kind of cons are? Sure. So I think working in urology, working in gynecology, working in endocrinology, and then in family medicine. I think also, like if you're in an oncologist, I think sexual dysfunction is a big part of providing care to oncology patients. And then obviously psychiatry. I think one of the benefits of doing it through psychiatry versus doing it through some of the other specialties is what I mentioned, that ability to kind of manage some of the psychological sequelae of the distress, of the anxiety. Additionally, I think the way you end up getting paid for your work is helpful to be a psychiatrist. If you're a family doctor and you get paid for 10 minutes with a patient, you're really not going to have a lot of time to peel back all the layers, to build rapport, to make your patient feel like they're able to really reveal some of their most intimate, most personal details of their lives with you, and then for you to be able to get everything you need to get in order to make an assessment, do a physical exam, all of that. So through psychiatry, where we get paid by time amounts, I think is probably the best way to be able to to really spend the time that's needed and to get paid appropriately for the work you can do. I think even if you're sort of a urologist or gynecologist, if you're just on a fee for service, it's one thing I think if you have some alternative funding uh, options, uh, but if you're just fee for service, I think it's it's tricky. And I think you also have to kind of keep up with your surgical skills. And so part of your week is going to be dedicated to making sure you're doing enough surgery, doing your follow-ups, your clinic follow-ups for that. And it might be difficult to carve out time in your week to just do enough sexual medicine. Maybe this is a good time to dive into what, what exactly is sexual medicine who are the people you work with? You mentioned that in medical school early on, you're working with lots of young people yeah. who had sexual maybe concerns, but uh, we could maybe dive into like, who are your patients? What does your day look like? What does the field encompass? These sorts of things. Sure. Maybe I'll start by clarifying there's a difference between sexual health and sexual medicine. Okay. So sexual health looks at the health in terms of infection. So STIs and reproduction and contraception, that all falls under the domain of sexual health. Sexual medicine refers to the actual functioning of the physiology anatomy of the body in terms of having optimal functioning or dysfunction. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So our patient population here, so at the BC Center for Sexual Medicine, we are the tertiary care clinic. So we deal with patients from all over the province of BC. 
that come in and they come in with a, a sexual concern or dysfunction, the reason or etiology for that dysfunction or, or concern could be quite varied. So it could be because they are a cancer patient and they've received surgical treatment, radiation treatment, chemotherapy, or on some sort of hormone medication that has caused the dysfunction. It could be somebody who's coming in with diabetes or cardiovascular difficulties. could be somebody who's coming in with medication-induced sexual dysfunction. could be somebody who just simply has a lot of anxiety and actual, actually develops sort of an anxiety disorder related to their sexual dysfunction. So the etiology is very vast and variable. And we welcome that because we, we have the skills to manage whatever biopsychosocial presentation, we can manage it. So we don't have any age requirements other than them being, you know, 17. So we don't have much of a pediatric patient population. Few exceptions to that. We do work with individuals who have differences of sexual development. So for example, if somebody has androgenous sensitivity syndromes or CAH, they might have some sexual concerns as a result of that. And so we will, on a case-by-case basis, see some more pediatric presentations, or usually they're in their adolescence and they're starting to figure out how they can experience their sexuality and explore their sexuality. So we might do a little bit, bit of work there. But most of our patients are 17 and above. And then we have patients, again, as young as 18, 19, all the way up to, I think the oldest patient I have is 87. So we don't discriminate based on age. We think everybody's entitled to experiencing a pleasurable, fulfilling sex life. And yeah, so our approach is basically we're going to use a biopsychosocial approach to the assessment. We're going to be able to use history, exam, if necessary, to make a diagnosis as to what the problem is. And then we're going to develop a treatment plan or recommendations. It's also going to be a biopsychosocial treatment intervention. Some of our treatment suggestions go back to the referring doctor and say, These are, this is what we recommend. We suggest you kind of put that in place. Sometimes those treatment recommendations are things that we offer through the clinic. So we offer a lot of group treatments. Currently, we have a group treatment for men with erectile dysfunction exacerbated in a partnered context. We have a treatment group for women with provoked vestibulodynia or pain with penetrative intercourse. And we are also in the works of offering a group for women with sexual interest slash arousal disorder and female orgasmic disorder. Could you talk a little bit about, um, on average, how many times you would see a patient just because as uh, coming into third year students, one thing that is a big factor in picking a specialty for a lot of medical students is this aspect of longitudinal care. Yeah. So... We can sometimes do a full assessment in one appointment. Sometimes that takes two, three appointments. It depends. We have the ability to not just, and we'd like to not just interview the patient, but if they're in a partnership, we'd like to interview their partner as well, together, separately. That helps us formulate a more rich understanding of their presentation. So yeah, so it could take a few appointments just to do the assessment. And then in terms of treatment and how long we end up seeing them, if we end up seeing them for follow-up treatment individually, we have some flexibility with that as well. A lot of a lot of our women who present who have pain, it's probably taken them seven plus years to finally get to us. They usually carry a lot of shame and a lot of trauma from experiences with other healthcare providers before they come to see us. And they carry a lot of unhelpful beliefs about how broken they are as individuals and how much distrust they have of physicians to truly understand that they have this pain condition. And we feel that there is benefit to these patients to be able to provide a bit of ongoing care. And when they feel like they're ready to kind of say, no, I know how to manage my pain condition. I have all the tools in my pockets. That's when we kind of say, okay, you're ready. You're ready to move on, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. We've got some, some, some options. Now, we, we're a very busy clinic, and so we appreciate that we can't see everybody once a week indefinitely. That would bog our clinic down. We, 
need to be able to see enough patients do appropriate consults and make recommendations onto the referring doctors. So there's a bit of a balancing act to make sure that we see enough patients and provide patients with the type of treatment that they can really benefit from. I'm interested now to do this, we might need to generalize a bit and so that like people listening can compare other fields in medicine. But given that you're working with such a varied and wide population of ages um, and also medical conditions, so understanding that, what are outcomes like for your patients? So in, in some fields, there are sort of quick fixes, and in others, there's long-term sort of chronic, maybe not big changes. What sort of outcomes do you see in your work? I believe that for the majority of our patients, we are able to improve things. So whether that looks like a reversal of from dysfunction to full function, that may not be possible. So if I have a patient who's had a prostatectomy and their nerves have been cut, I cannot repair those nerves and allow them to have full erectile functioning the way they used to. But I certainly can introduce them to other strategies and techniques that will allow them to have some functioning and allow them to tune more into other aspects of sexual pleasure and I can for sure reduce their distress about their experience. So I think if we focus on how much distress am I able to eliminate, how much more confidence can I give them in their ability to advocate for arousing and pleasurable sexual activity, I think that's where I've made a difference. I think my career versus being in general psychiatry is much more rewarding. I think my pet, my patients get better. They may not be quote unquote cured completely, mm-hmm. but they get better and they suffer less. And I don't think all psychiatrists can always say that. I mean, obviously it depends on what area of psychiatry. There's lots of different areas, but I think some psychiatrists, especially those who work with the more severe and persistent mental illness population, I think not all of their patients always get as well as they would like them to. So sexual medicine isn't necessarily the most well-known specialty out there or a type of medicine. For those people who are not so familiar with it, could you talk about the importance that sexual function has in, in people's quality of life? Yeah, I think this is unfortunately a really neglected part of medicine in general. There's lots of studies documenting why physicians don't ask about this. They're uncomfortable. They mistakenly think that patients would be uncomfortable, that there's stigma, there's shame. There's a feeling of, if I ask a patient, they're going to say something and I'm not going to know how to fix it, so I better not ask. There's a sense of um, it might be inappropriate. So many varied reasons. And the studies have all actually said that's not what patients want. Patients do want physicians and expect physicians to ask about their sexual functioning because I think most people can appreciate that sexual functioning is an aspect of quality of life. It's part of who we are as humans. It's a function just like eating, sleeping. And I think the onus should be on us in, in, as physicians and at medical schools to train our, our upcoming generations to make sure we provide enough attention. Now, obviously that doesn't mean we're going to ask every single patient all the time in all contexts. There has to be a bit of clinical judgment about when's an appropriate time. But I think we could do a better job than we're currently doing in terms of asking about it. So I remember when you were teaching our clinical skills session, you were looking on the board at the patient profile and you noticed that they hadn't mentioned his erectile dysfunction. And so I know that you said you were going to go back and have that changed in the tutor guide. So you have a big role in teaching sexual medicine in our undergraduate curriculum. What changes would you, if it were up to you, what would you make in order to increase awareness and people's ability to handle these types of problems? So I am the sexuality theme lead for the curriculum renewal project. So I am aware of the cases, the CBL cases that I or my colleagues have gone in and made suggested changes. And I think for that particular case you're thinking of, I know what it says in the actual tutor guide, but 
I guess it's variable in terms of which tutors actually spend enough time actually talking about this or highlighting this. So I have followed, since we met, um, I have followed up and sort of have been informed that I can always have a tutor training session in advance. Mm. So that may be something if timing wise, I'm able to accomplish that I might for that specific week, kind of see if I can meet with the tutors and sort of let them know that I think this is an area that can't just be kind of brushed off and can't just be thought, well, that's fluffy stuff. Mm. Like there's more important meat than potatoes in this case. No, this is equally important. And I, I think should be a stressed area, particularly in that case, because that's the one that we were talking about where generalized erectile dysfunction is a harbinger of future major cardiovascular events. So I think that's a really important one. Mm-hmm. A bit more broadly for maybe people who are listening outside of Vancouver, outside of UBC, we had the opportunity to learn a few tips as medical students that we can use to integrate sexual medicine and some of sexual health into like a general review of systems or these sorts of things. What are some tips that you would give medical students in Canada or anywhere about how to do that, given that this is relevant to every patient we're going to see? Yeah, great question. So I think probably what I stressed to you guys quite a bit was this notion of if you can think about when you screen for changes in appetite. So have you noticed any changes in appetite? Have you noticed any changes in sleep? So asking about sleep functioning. It makes sense to add on, have you noticed any changes in sexual functioning? So you can, if you always pair those three questions together, you will always be addressing the three basic human functioning aspects uh, and you won't miss it. And it's as easy as that, just saying, have you noticed any changes in your sexual functioning? Patients can say yes, no. If they say yes, that can open the door to more questions. But otherwise, you've at least done your job of screening and bringing it to awareness. We spent time teaching the UBC medical students about other ways to screen, but I would say that is the easiest, most effective way. So I think some physicians might feel uncomfortable bringing up the subject of sexual function because A, they may not feel comfortable with it just in general, but also B, may not feel equipped to address some of the concerns that come up because it is kind of a huge can of worms. What can medical students or practicing physicians do once they these issues have been screened for? Like, Where can they send them? Great. So I think first, if the patient has kind of identified that they have noticed some changes in their sexual functioning, I think it's super valuable for the medical student or the physician to kind of validate that experience, hopefully do a bit of normalization, sort of saying something along the lines of it's very common for patients presenting with this condition to notice some changes in their sexual functioning. I'm glad you felt comfortable bringing that up today. I may not have an answer for you today as to how to proceed from here, but when I see you in follow-up, we can discuss what options are available to you. So saying something like that will hopefully let the patient know that their concern has been heard and that something can be done about it. And in all areas of medicine, you don't always have to have all the answers all the time right away to all things. But you do have to be diligent enough to kind of say, this is an area that requires more investigation and I will ask my preceptor. And if my preceptor doesn't know, we'll kind of figure out together what we could potentially do. Thankfully here in BC, you can refer on to other experts that might know. It might involve referring on to our clinic, but also there are other options, there are other venues of where you can get some, some basic support around this. And then also as a clinical skills tutor, you've seen a lot of us stumble through our sexual medicine interviews. Are there things that you can think of where you would advise medical students or other physicians to definitely not say or do in an interview? Oh boy. Well, first of all, a lot of you guys don't stumble through. I think at UBC, we're lucky. We have a lot of medical students who actually have some sensitivity and communication skills that they are comfortable with asking patients these really sensitive questions. So I'm very proud of our UBC students. I think in all areas of medicine, then we are human. And sometimes we do kind of stumble on words. And sometimes we do make a few mistakes. I think just kind of honestly saying, 
you know, I don't know if I said that in the most clearest way. Let me rephrase myself. Let me take a moment and start again. I think we're that's okay to do. I think trying to avoid using the term sexual dysfunction with a patient and instead talking about sexual functioning can be helpful. Another thing that I think is super, super important is to remember that the human sexual response is not a linear four-step process that we previously used to think it was and understanding that desire is not something that is necessarily always spontaneous but rather can be triggered after you start to engage in a sexual encounter and I think that that awareness will allow for less pathologizing of normal human sexual experience so that's something I think is really important to take away yeah I have one quick question on that should you use jargon sexual terms or medical sexual terms I I believe that it's important to keep things professional and clinical. And so I will use as much medical terminology as I can. In my line of work, I hear a lot of jargon. Mm-hmm. Patients don't know quite how to express what it is they are into or engage in or what types of sexual stimuli is most effective for them. And so sometimes patients will kind of struggle I like to model the medical phrases so that they can say, yes, yes, that's actually what I meant to say. So, for example, I will use the term self-stimulation instead of masturbation. And you can imagine all the other ways of, yeah, from there, the ways that we kind of phrase things. And I think that's important that that reassures patients that this is in a safe, professional environment. Is it a typical thing where, because you are diving into such intimate parts of your patients' lives, have there ever been instances where some of those boundaries might have been crossed, or is that a struggle that you deal with? I think by the time patients are coming to see a sex doctor, there is a certain awareness of they're going to ask me personal, in-depth questions. When I first meet patients and introduce myself and introduce the work that our clinic does, I usually give them a layout of how the appointment is going to proceed. And I let them know straight up that I am going to be asking in-depth personal questions about their sexual functioning and their sex lives. So I let them know right off the get-go. Patients, I also believe in ongoing consent. So patients can always express to me, I'm I'm not comfortable in answering this question. And sometimes we have a conversation about that. Like, what what is it that makes you unwilling to explore that with me in a bit more detail? And then I can make a clinical judgment of like, do I I really need to kind of press on this because I think this is crucial to me being able to make an accurate diagnosis? Or is it okay if we don't go into as much detail in that area and instead focus on other areas that will help me make a better diagnosis? So maybe switching gears again, what is the future of this field? What does it look like, you know, in 5, 10, 20 years? Do you have any ideas about that? Do you, Is there a need for people to go into this field? Well, um, we would love to have more colleagues working with us. Again, you, there's six of us at this clinic servicing the entire province. I would like for us to grow, have more physicians who sort of specialize in this area so that we can meet the demands of our of our population, especially as our population continues to age. I think there's going to be more and more awareness of a need to continue to have healthy, rewarding sex lives as you get older. So yeah, so I believe that there is more opportunities and I believe that, again, it's a really rewarding field of medicine and I would encourage medical students to consider it. Could you talk to some of the myths or misconceptions of your field? Are there any I, that you're aware of? I was going to ask you. I'm like, what, 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 what are some of them? I'm not sure what they are. I come from obviously a biased perspective where I think what we do is awesome and super important. Um, I guess that's one that 
the rest of medicine doesn't think that what we do is very valuable or, you know, if you have somebody who's saving lives in the emergency room, they might be like, sex again is sort of a fluffy afterthought and it's not as valuable or as important as removing somebody's cancer. And I, I can appreciate that and I understand, yes, like if if you're not alive, then there's no sexual dysfunction to deal with. But I think it's harmful to think in any form of medicine that one area of medicine is more important than another area of medicine. I think we see that in psychiatry as well. So just general psychiatry, there's a sense of, oh, psychiatrists, not really doctors. I think that's a very unhelpful understanding or misunderstanding. I think it's an unhelpful, it, it, it speaks, I think, to stigma. And I think there's stigma with regards to mental health, even within the medical community. I hope you've interviewed psychiatrists and you've been able to talk about you this. You were actually the first. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you do another piece on, on stigma with regards to mental health and psychiatrists. Yeah, so I, so I guess maybe there is this sense that, that a patient's sexual functioning isn't quite as important as other parts of their care. I think if you were to ask patients, they would say, no, my sexual functioning is very, very important. I can think of you know, in terms of patients who are on antipsychotics, in medicine, when we screen our patients for side effects, we often will think, oh, you know, if you're excessively tired or if you have extrapyramidal symptoms, that would be the most distressing part of your presentation. And patients will say, no, I think my sexual dysfunction mm -hmm. is way more important than my, my akathisia. Patients probably won't volunteer that information, though. So it has to be the physician who specifically asks about it and opens that door, because otherwise patients will just say, no, no, I'm just so tired all the time. That's my main side effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I think you've given a lot of good reasons about or reasons for why sexual medicine is awesome. I remember in our session, you said my goal is to help people have better sex. And I thought that was amazing. Could you talk about other reasons why medical students should really consider sexual medicine or psychiatry in general as a career? I think, I think there, that to be a really good physician, you need to be able to recognize the importance of your own self-care. And I think life-work balance is an important aspect of that. And I think sexual medicine and psychiatry are fields that have already identified that that's important and therefore can help support you in achieving a life where you're able to still work really hard and also have a life outside of your work. I think it was in conversation with you when you were teaching us, but it may have been with one of your colleagues. But the idea was that actually in psychiatry, there's a lot of teaching around how is my work affecting me? And in, that's an area of focus within psychiatry, if I understand that correctly, and not necessarily a focus in other fields of medicine, although it equally should be. And that's something that really stood out to me as something unique about psychiatry and this even the broader idea of work-life balance and your own health as a provider of care. I believe that reflecting on your experience day to day, being able to appreciate when your stress levels are making it so that you might not be working at optimal speed with your patients is an important skill. And I think it should be done above and beyond in psychiatry. In psychiatry, it's super important. You need to be aware of transference, countertransference and all of that and how that plays out. But I think all areas of medicine, we should be better at reflecting how we're doing so that we can make skillful actions to be the best physicians possible. And on a very sort of almost practical level, what does your typical day look like? How many patients might... You, you mentioned that you have some group therapy and, or group treatment. Yeah. What does your an average day look like for you? Yeah, so... Depending on the start of the clinic, might start at 8 o'clock on some days, might start at 9 o'clock, kind of varies on the day. If I'm post-call, I might have a little bit of a later start. And then I see patients up until lunchtime. We usually, we try to take lunchtimes, but often we end up just having meetings. 
We also try to do rounds on a regular basis. So we have residents rotating through and they'll present their rounds. Sometimes we have research meetings for some of the various research projects we're working on. And then we will continue up in the afternoon seeing patients or running groups. Our day usually ends at around four o'clock. Sometimes some of us go a bit later. If I've started late, I might work a little bit later, but I'm not, I'm not seeing patients usually past five o'clock. Because we are part of the Department of Psychiatry, I am on call in the emergency room for general psychiatry, which I actually absolutely love doing. I love emergency psychiatry work. I like being on call. I know it sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. It's my one way to kind of ensure that I keep up to date with my general psychiatry skills because I did go through the whole five years Mm -hmm. to become a a psychiatrist. I don't want to lose those skills. And by doing the emergency call, I feel like it's a way that I can keep some of my general psychiatry skills up. I wanted to take this back to earlier in the interview when you said you were kind of considering a lot of things. You obviously have a wide skill set as well as what you said, a lot of interest at the time. Mm -hmm. How did you narrow it down to sexual medicine? And I mean, it sounds like a lot of your experiences and interests were shaped by some of the rotations you had been on and, and the events and population you had seen. But I guess speaking to our audience, a lot of us, we don't know what there is or we like a little bit of everything, but we're just not sure. What advice can you give? I think what appealed to me about sexual medicine was that it really allowed me to think of somebody in terms of the traditional medical biological sense and to think about them in terms of psychological aspects and then to think about them as humans living in the real world. And I think there are parts of medicine that do a better job of really doing the full biopsychosocial appreciation. I think sleep medicine is one of those areas, and I think sexual medicine is another area where you can really intuitively understand why it's important to think about all these aspects. And what I like about doing sexual medicine is I get to really live that. I mean, there's not many psychiatrists who still physically examine their patients and let alone their genitals. But I, I do that. That's part of my everyday practice is to physically examine some of my patients that require a physical exam. And I, I prescribe treatments that, you know, hormone treatments that my colleagues in psychiatry would never prescribe. But to me, it's a fundamental part of my medical practice. And so I get to still feel at the end of the day, like I am a medical doctor. Plus, I'm also a psychiatrist. Plus, I'm also a counselor if required. Although I try not to, if, if a patient is presenting purely on a, on a, only a relationship issue, then I think they're better served by seeing uh, a therapist in the community. Our skill set at this clinic is to really prioritize the patients who have a, a medical functional difficulty and not just a relationship conflict, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I mean to say more so is could you give advice on how to pick a specialty? What yeah. things you considered personally and what things you think are really important to weigh when yeah. making this decision? Okay. Thank you for clarifying. So, yes, I think it's important to get a sense of what you're passionate about. I think we're going to commit a lot of time to working and ideally you want to have a job that you are happy to go to most of the time for many, many years. So you have to have a certain amount of passion, a certain amount of feeling and belief that the work that you do is valuable and of benefit to your patients. So figure that out because that's going to be an important piece. And then figure out what's going to help you have the work-life balance you want to have. Think about, you know, do I want to be working somewhere like in ICU where I work for two weeks really, really hard and then I get to have a couple of weeks off? Maybe that's the work life that works for you. Maybe I just want to have a job where I have nine to five and I know every evening I'll be at home with my kids. I think reflecting on how things will look down the road is an important piece. And then making sure that you're thinking about financial aspects as well. Am I going to be working somewhere where... I'm getting paid appropriately for the amount of work that I'm putting in. 
So I think those are areas we all kind of need to think about. I would say passion, though, and a sense of, of this is an important area and I'm doing a lot of good in the world is probably one of the most important things. Maybe I'll just ask then for you in the end, when you kind of knew, was it just a serendipitous moment where it was just this, you were hit with a realization or were you a pros and cons list kind of person or maybe both? I think when I decided sexual medicine was for me, it was kind of like a, like a in the moment awakening of like, oh my God, of course, like this is it. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to do. The deciding how I was going to do it was a pros and cons list thing for sure. I really did spend a lot of time weighing out urology versus psychiatry versus family medicine. That took me a, a long time. And I spent a lot of time speaking with other clinicians and experts to get their perspective and point of view. And I, I really do believe that I made the best choice by going into psychiatry so that I would, I'm really glad that I went the way I did. Um, Has there yeah. ever been a time where you regretted any part of your journey or you would have done it differently? The other area of medicine that I really enjoyed was dermatology. Mm. And so there are lots of, I was really good at derm. <laughs> <laughs> it works for me now because it really helps me pick up skin conditions uh, on the vulva in particular, which could impact a patient's presentation with pain. So I think it was a valuable skill set for me to do a lot of electives in that area. Every now and again, when, for whatever reason, there's sort of, you're feeling like, I don't know, there's obstacles to providing the care I want to be able to provide. I'll have a thought of, oh man, I should have gone into dermatology. <laughs> but I would say, for the most part, I mean, I love, I love what I do. So... Some of the things that students talk about when choosing a specialty is, will I fit into this culture? And is my personality type one that will jive with other people in that culture? What kind of medical student would you say is best suited to psychiatry or not? And does that kind of exist? Is there a personality type? <laughs> I want to say, like, I know what you mean. Like, mm -hmm. I, I remember working with my internal medicine preceptor and I was talking about going into urology and they looked at me and they were like Shauna you are not a surgeon like you care too much <laughs> and that's not to say that surgeons don't care about their patients for sure but they were operating on this like stereotype of surgeons are one way and Shauna you are you care a lot and they were like, I think you're gonna like not thrive in a surgical residency because that aspect of you where, where you're so amazing at having this empathy for your patients, I don't think that's gonna be able to be uh, nourished and cultivated in a surgical rotation. So I know exactly what you mean when you say like, there are these preconceived notions about what this area of medicine, what personality should go into it. And this area of medicine, you need to be this type A and blah, blah, blah. And I think there should be some wiggle room to break down some of those stereotypes. And I don't think we should say, oh, just because you're this, you can't do anything else because maybe you bring another skill set and you'll actually make that a much better specialty because you are different from all the others. So I want to be mindful of, of opportunities and not close doors for people. I think you have an asset of being a good psychiatrist if you're somebody who's able to reflect on yourself, your own biases, your own pitfalls, and have an openness of, I want to work on these to become a better person, a better physician. Um, so I think that's an attribute that is helpful in, in, in psychiatry. I think in sexual medicine, you, there's an asset of being somebody who's open-minded and accepting of other people's potential sexual interests. People can be aroused by all sorts of things. And I think you're a better sexual medicine physician if you have sensitivity and awareness that not everybody's the same. 
So I think that's a personality trait that would make some people better suited for sexual medicine. So some of these personality traits as well as skill sets, like being empathetic, like being a good communicator, like being able to listen to someone's story and synthesize what are the really important and relevant aspects of what they're telling me, are these things that can be learned or do you think really they tend to be already present in the people who enter this field to begin with? Probably if you already naturally do some of these things, you will be more attracted to this area. But I believe strongly in the ability to learn things. And I think that you, that if a medical student listening to this is reflecting and saying, you know, oh, I really need to work on being more empathetic with my patients. I think that's a, a skill that can be learned. And once you have awareness of this is an area I need to work on, you just need to work on it. So yeah, I, I think you can improve on things. And then there might be others who just naturally already have that skill set. Um, but there's always room for improvement. We're all constantly learning. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for taking time to speak with us today. Time away from your work in the day. It's time away from patients that you could be caring for. But I think it really means a lot to us. And I know that a lot of our class, as this is growing, are listening and enjoying. Uh, so it really, I think, can have a lot of impact. So thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Very welcome. It's my pleasure. I'm really I'm really excited for you guys to be doing this. I think it's important to expose your colleagues to all the different areas of medicine that they might not normally think about. And it's my pleasure to be involved. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 